You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, Grant. James, hi, mate. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, good. Are we ready to record? Yeah, I just uh, I'm, I'm waiting for Aaron. He said that he was going to be calling in, um, but I'm not sure where from. <laughs> Typical, right? The second week in a row that I'm in the same city, and now we can't find Aaron. I know. It's I don't, I don't know what to do with you hosts. I, it's it's crazy. Well, look, I, I guess I could do it on my own, but it's it's a lot more fun when he's around. God God forbid I have to talk to you for now. Hello, wait, wait, guys. Hold on. I, I think I'm, I'm getting something. Aaron. Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Guys. You there? You're breaking up you a sound, bit, mate. You sound really distant. Where are you? I, I can barely hear you. Guys, I'm I'm in the thermosphere. What's the thermosphere? I'm 450 kilometers up, guys. But what you doing up there? <laughs> you know, look. Uh, oh, over there, I can I can see the copper mines in Australia. Man, the, the supply is really piling up there. I think, man, I might go short copper. Well, oh, now I'm over the Strait of Hormuz. Man, look at all those oil tankers. Grant, I think we should go short oil too. Have you been drinking? No, no, I told you, I'm in the thermosphere. I'm, I'm traveling at 20,000 kilometers per hour. This is amazing. Aaron, when you said that you were going to be calling in, I thought you were feeling ill or sick or something. All right, Aaron, so we know where you are. Uh, what the hell is this all about? Well, that's a really good question, Grant, because this week on Adventures in Finance, our feature is out of this world. With a combination of amazing feats of engineering and computer science, we take you 700 kilometers above the Earth, traveling across continents at speeds of over 20,000 kilometers per hour to capture data of a world at 50 centimeter resolution. Featuring James Crawford, CEO and founder of Orbital Insights, we'll be talking about how satellite imagery and our ability to process massive data sets at an unimaginable scale is changing finance forever. All right, Aaron. Well, uh, look, it's it's great to have you there, but I suggest you maybe want to come back down to Earth so we can get on with the podcast. Hey, if there's any way that uh, we could fire James into outer space, that might be really helpful. Is he coming back, though? We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Get yourself back down here. Let's get on with the podcast. Wow, Grant, I had no idea space travel was a part of the podcasting budget, but I am glad to be back on Earth, so why don't you tell everyone what else is coming up in this episode? In our long short segment, we highlight the good and the not-so-good stories of the week. Grant, I am long artificial intelligence this week. Now, it's like, why does this matter? You know, why is this important? Well, it's actually a monumental achievement because it represents a leap forward in, I guess, the types of problems that AI can solve. I am long Australia, and I am short France. And anyone that uh, that loves sunshine is going to think that trade's a perfectly natural one to put on, and anyone that loves cheese is going to think I'm out of my mind. Finally, in a segment we call Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they've made in the past and ask them to share a pearl of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. This week, we feature the brilliant Javed Mian, founder and managing editor of the global macro research and trading advisory firm Stray Reflections. What gets me into markets is actually I think that it intersects life uh, as well. And I think the biggest uh, risk or the biggest enemy in life that we have is our ego. And I think the same applies to markets. So a lot of times you're just fighting with the market because you think you're right. Um, And it's actually the ego that is uh, playing that game as opposed to solid understanding of fundamentals. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan. And this is Adventures in Finance. Today is March 9th, 2017, and welcome to episode six of Adventures in Finance. Here to my right is producer James. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Today's feature is something that you are pretty familiar with, James, right? Yep, yep, that's, that's right. Geographic information systems. Can you tell us what that is? Well, basically, it's data that is spatially referenced. So you have data and you have basically a latitude and a longitude that goes along with it, and you can tell how different data sets are interacting with each other on a global scale. That's really cool. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about this. 
but it involves satellites. But one thing these satellites can't do, even the highest res- resolution satellites, is to pinpoint Grant's whereabouts. So, Grant, where in the world are you? There's a very good reason for that, Aaron. Uh, it's it's highly classified. Uh, all <laughs> I can tell you is it rhymes with Bingapore, but that's uh, that's the only clue I'm going to give you. I can't think of where that could possibly be. But maybe after the Vault 7 release, uh, we'll find out where you are today. Shh. <laughs> All right. First up this week, as usual, uh, Aaron and I are going to catch up on our long and short ideas from the past week. And uh, for the second week in a row, Aaron, I've been a little bit cheeky here. And my uh, long and short are both wrapped into the same story. So I am going to get you to kick things off with your long for the week. What have you got for us? I knew it. It's just a way to get me to go first. Well, my long for the week is a study that was published in Science recently, which is the journal. And a team at the University of Alberta, they created an AI system called DeepStack that was able to defeat professional human players in heads-up, no-limit Texas Hold'em poker. Now, it's like, why does this matter? You know, why is this important? Well, it's actually a monumental achievement because it represents a leap forward in, I guess, the types of problems that AI can solve. Uh, You know, we think back to IBM's Deep Blue defeating Gary Kasparov at chess. And I mean, think about recently Google's DeepMind AlphaGo program defeating, uh, I forget the, the Korean player's name, but defeating him at Go. Now, now chess and Go are both what they call perfect information problems, where uh, all the pieces and all the information is out there in the open for the algorithm to process. But Texas Hold'em is different because it's an imperfect information game, meaning, you know, the players, they hold their cards and there, there are certain cards and information that is not available to the AI system. But the AI system was able to train over a million, uh, over a million different random uh, card games before playing against professional players, and it was able to beat them. And this is a massive step forward for AI systems going forward and the kinds of problems they can solve. So, Grant, I am long artificial intelligence this week. Well, look, I got to say, uh, again, this is some super nerdy stuff from you. I'd love to see your your reading list by the side of your bed. But for me, in this particular instance, uh, if it's all the same to you, I will be long the house. I, I, I don't care if it's a computer or a human. I will always take the house over them. Well, you're going to need one. You're selling yours right now, right? <laughs> okay, now, my long short uh, is an interesting one. I am long Australia. Uh, and I am short France, and anyone that uh, that loves sunshine is going to think that trade's a perfectly natural one to put on, and anyone that loves cheese is going to think I'm out of my mind. But this is all about the uh, number of millionaires who are moving countries around the world. And in 2016, there were 82,000 people with assets of over a million that left their home countries last year. That was up uh, from 64,000 the year before. Um, it's It's a big number. And for the second year in a row, Australia was the number one destination for these millionaire migrants. Um, And this year, it toppled the US. So there were 11,000 millionaires who moved to Australia last year. Wow. Uh, That's a 38% jump. Um, And uh, the US uh, was pegged at 10,000. So uh, Australia is the most popular destination. And on the other side of the ledger, France lost 12,000 millionaires last year. Now, yeah, it's fairly obvious on on the on the negative side. I think we understand why uh, so many people are fleeing France. There's there's been a lot of terrorist attacks. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of political strife there, and the economy has been struggling somewhat. Um, and uh, you know, Australia, the sunburned country, it is uh, the weather's great. You can still get some uh, pretty affordable housing in certain parts of the country. Maybe not anywhere near Sydney Harbour, but uh, other parts of, of that amazing country, you can you can buy decent sized property. Uh, and of course, it's a long way away. And when people start to get nervous, um, living on the other side of the world uh, is actually quite an appealing uh, thing to do. So, you know, I, I think for the first time. Um, this has been driven mostly by politics, which is interesting given what's been going on in the world. So if you run down the lists, uh, the countries gaining the most millionaires, Australia had 11,000, the USA 10,000, and then behind them, Canada with 8,000. That was up uh, almost 100% from the year before. And then the UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, had 5,000 millionaires move there. Uh, and last but by no means least, uh, New Zealand, who have doubled since 2010, up uh, from 2,000 to 4,000. Leaving, uh, apart from France, say they lost 12,000 last year. China, another 9,000. That's no change on the year before. And then Brazil, India, and Turkey rounding out the top five. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch the flows uh, of people. It's interesting to watch the flows of people who have money. I think you can understand the motivations for the people leaving uh, China, Brazil, India, Turkey to go to places like Australia. Um, But the France France number surprised me a great deal. So I am short France, and I am long Australia. 
Yeah, Grant, it's really interesting when you run through that list because I think a, a couple of those a couple of those countries have pretty high tax rates. So I guess that would corroborate with the, with the idea that political risk is driving this migration, right? Um, people yeah. are willing to submit themselves to higher tax rates in return for, I guess you could say, perceived political stability. Yeah, no, look, I think it's a great point. I mean, no, no, nobody's going uh, to Australia as a tax exile, that's for sure. Uh, nor are they doing that in the US uh, or even Canada. I mean, UAE is a slightly different story. Um, but yeah, look, I think it's a great point. I think people are are not just moving there to to, uh, to take home a bigger part of their pay packet. They're moving there for, for reasons of safety. Anyway, that's uh, that's my long and short, uh, which leaves us with just your short. So what are you short of this week, Aaron? Oh boy, I'm a little hesitant on this one because uh, I, I'm, I'm scared, Grant, and you'll, you'll know why. I am short Mike Tyson this week. And you, <laughs> yeah, you may know why I'm short Mike Tyson. I know. Uh, I saw this story. I know exactly where you're going with oh this. Oh, boy. So there's some, some images going around on, on Twitter. And Mike Tyson, I think last year, started a retail brokerage company called Trade 12. And he's the figure out. He's the face of this, of this company. And, you know, it, it's basically retail brokerage that offers you 400 times leverage on FX trades. And you can trade stocks and whatnot. But I'm just thinking, if if Mike Tyson is coming out with a retail brokerage, it has to be the top, right? It, it's got to be the top uh, of this market here. Uh, it just it just proves to me that there's just too much fiat floating around in this world, and we we must be at the top with with stuff like this. So, Grant, I am I am short Mike Tyson this week, but I am I'm careful because I don't want to be you know he, he could jump out of any anywhere and just uppercut me in the face. I'm just. I'm just scared to say it's off. Well, look, I mean, maybe just be safe, be short the market, not Mike Tyson in particular. I mean, it's uh, 400 times leverage and Mike Tyson now, what could possibly go wrong? But, but Grant, you know, uh, you know what's ironic is that one of his most, one of my favorite Mike Tyson quotes, and it goes, it, it's this, everyone thinks they have a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I think it's actually great investing advice because you can just relay that everyone thinks they have a plan. Everyone thinks they're at risk parity until they get punched in the mouth or upper, uppercut by volatility or a margin call. So I think... Uh, Maybe some of his investors or investors on his platform can follow his investing advice. Well, if you're going to get punched in the mouth, I would prefer it not to be from Mike Tyson. I'd rather get punched in the face by the market. But look, you know, uh, they say they never ring a bell at the top. But if there's one man on this planet who is used to hearing a bell ring, it's Mike Tyson. So uh, I guess maybe with Aaron, maybe this is the very top of the market. We'll have to see. All right, coming up next is our commentary segment featuring James Crawford, who's the founder and CEO of San Francisco-based Orbital Insight. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our commentary segment, this is where Grant and Raul revisit a past Real Vision TV interview and then layer on their insights and reactions. Now, given all the advancements in cloud computing, they've enabled real-time processing and analysis of reams of satellite imagery data and now Orbital Insights is using this data to great effect to understand trends at various scales. So sit back and enjoy uh, Raoul and I's observations about a fascinating interview with James Crawford, the CEO of Orbital Insight. So Grant, what I loved is I went to San Francisco. I think I was interviewing John Burbank and a few others. And somebody said, listen, you've got to interview this guy called James Crawford. Yeah. This was back in, I don't know, October 2015. I was like, sure, I don't know who he is. Oh, he's come out of Google. He's doing something interesting with big data. I'm like, okay, we're in the we're in the West Coast. It should be interesting. And it completely blew me away. I was just not prepared for it. And it's still one of my favorite ever interviews uh, on Real Vision. Not so much because of how James spoke or whatever. It's just what he was doing just kind of blew my mind and almost everybody else's minds. Thinking, I remember the call. I remember you calling me and saying, you will not believe the conversation I've just had. It's just one of those moments and we get so many of them. Yeah, exactly right. So let's listen to some of the interview and uh, go through some of the things we learned on the route. What our company is about is we are about the large-scale understanding of the Earth. We're about taking what we can now get from satellite imagery, drone imagery, and other sources at scale about the Earth and processing it enough that we can get insights into what's going on in the world and major trends. It sounds kind of mind-blowing and a big, very big task. What was your background? How did you get into all of this? So I'm originally a PhD in artificial intelligence. Um, I moved out here to San Francisco not to join a startup. Everybody seems to move out here for startups, right? I, I, I moved out here because NASA Ames is here, which is the NASA, NASA's headquarters for computer science. So I, ran, I moved out here to run autonomy and robotics at NASA Ames. And we did some very cool software for the, for the Mars missions and some of the other NASA missions. And then I started working in startups. Because once you're here, you can't escape it. So <laughs> I worked in various startups, and then I actually got the opportunity to, to run the Google Books project, 
um, which is where we're scanning all the world's books. We, we scan the 20 millionth book on my watch. And it's a, and it's a really interesting, it's, it's a really interesting platform because you start from a, literally a photograph of a book page and you process it all the way to the point where you recognize the words, you, you categorize the words and if somebody types to be or not to be on Google search, you'll get a page from Hamlet. Um, and, and the way I see what we're doing in, with Orbital Insight is very much like that, but for satellite images and for understanding socioeconomic trends. So Google Books starts from book pages and, and lets you search for books. We start from images of the world, right? The cities, the towns, the ports, the fields. And we process those through a similarly complicated pipeline. But at the end, instead of letting you search for passages in books, we let you, we let you answer questions like, what's the U.S. corn yield going to be? Or what's, the Walmart, what's Walmart's next quarter going to be? So it's, a, it's sort of a Google Books for satellites. Sort of that's the big vision of the company. You and I were actually laughing during the beginning of that interview because he, he strolls in and says, well, I came out of artificial intelligence, then I went to NASA. I did kind of some Mars program with NASA. Then I decided to go and do a startup, and then I went to Google. Yeah, it's- I, I, you know, when I was listening to it, and I hear him saying, you know, I came out of NASA, I thought he said then I went to work at Starbucks, but he said startups. <laughs> I think, how bad can things go that you go from NASA to Starbucks? But just a fascinating guy. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And what I loved about this is this was start of part of my journey into I think it was at the same time I met people like Tim Ferriss and this kind of West Coast thinking suddenly really came on my radar screen the scale of ambition in the West Coast versus the East Coast or in Europe is beyond my imagination and this guy most people think that the West Coast is all about kind of high-flying ideas that don't actually can't be monetized that are slightly crazy this is a guy with an absolutely ridiculous idea which is to take all the satellite imagery in the world and bring it down into economic indicators in real time where he can monitor the number of cars in a Walmart in some place in Michigan. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's an incredible idea, and it's funny how many people... I mean, this was, what, a little over a year ago, not that much over a year ago. And at the time we had this interview, so many people were like, wow, this is just crazy what this guy's doing. And, you know, since then, you know, I know this information is being used by so many people in such a short space of time. It just shows you that once you bring this technology... People are just voracious in how they adopt it and use it. Yeah, so let's hit, listen to more of the interview, see what else he reveals for us. In principle, this, this kind of information is valuable to governments, to non-governmental aid organizations, to insurance companies, energy companies. But we made a decision very early on that our first market would be the investment community, um, especially hedge funds. Um, and the reason for that is not because that's ultimately we think that's a portion of our market, um, but they make decisions very fast and they're really, really smart. So if you bring something that's actually valuable and unique and insightful to a hedge fund manager, they can make a decision in literally two days to buy it. If you bring something that's equally insightful and valuable to a U.S. government agency, it will still take them a year before they write you a check, right, in, in general, there are some exceptions. But most of the time, the hedge fund market makes decisions and moves very fast. So we made that decision to move in the hedge fund space. And then we basically, through our investors and our contacts, we went up to New York and met with 20, 25 very senior, very smart investors, people who had been or were legends in the space, and, and put in front of them 50 things we can measure. Said, here's all the things we think we can measure with satellites, you know, help us prioritize. And we got some very good early advice on how to prioritize that list and sort of where to start in terms of providing the early value. Again, I thought this was interesting because... Here again is Silicon Valley that's supposed to be a non-commercial enterprise. Yeah. That's only, and the first thing he goes is, we need to sell to hedge funds. Yeah, but, it's, but it's, I, think the, I think the decision was almost made for him. It was more a case of, we can't go to the government. Because <laughs> it's just not, you know, it'll take, and he's right, it, uh, that sort of stuff takes forever. And you, know, you and I have seen in conversations we've had since then, as I, as I alluded to earlier on, just how many people have seen this technology and said, you know, we've got to have that. It's, it's, it's just fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming from that background myself just realizing how useful it is to be able to analyze the shipping tankerage what's going on the amount of oil in oil storage to the number of cars at a certain you know shopping mall or or supermarket chain or whatever it is it's just incredible when it's independent it's independent data you're not relying on a government agency you're not there's no skew here this is this is imagery that's right i think one of the things he alluded to before he talked about crop reports and maybe it comes up later in this interview is so often people have thought crop reports have been a lie 
and economic data in general we know keeps getting manipulated. Nobody really knows what the unemployment rate yeah. or the inflation rate or is it anything anymore. But with this, it's really interesting because you actually know what's going on. Yeah. This is this is really hard to and fake. It's massive number crunching involved. It's yeah. not like looking at Google Pick and thinking, oh, that's fine. This guy crunches enormous amounts of data to do this. Anyway, let's hear it. Let's hear some more. I was previously um, uh, SVP of Science and Engineering here at Climate Corp before Monsanto bought us for a billion dollars. And so I've been in, in the ag space for a while. And there's a lot you can tell from satellite imagery. You can tell both the how the water content of the vegetation as well as the health of the vegetation. Um, and you can tell it on a, on a big scale because what, what a lot of folks do now is they'll go out and take a few samples. And the U.S. Corn Belt is most of the water in the U.S. Corn Belt is convective. It comes from thunderstorms, right? And so it can literally rain in your front yard and not in your backyard. So if you take a few samples and you take them in the wrong place, you can get a very wrong idea. But, but we can get satellite imagery of the entire Corn Belt. Right, and process it on a regular basis and get sort of a holistic idea of where it's going. So um, if you take the example of, of the Corn Belt, the, um, it, you don't necessarily have to go to a very high resolution. So, so if you, a cornfield, you know, if you have a, a, a thir- 15 meters per pixel, so each pixel represents 45 feet by 45 feet, that turns out to be pretty much sufficient resolution for corn. And at that resolution, the amount of, of imagery required to cover the U.S. Corn Belt is big, but it's not crazy big. It's not like Google Books scale big. Um, and we can process it. We, we do use the Amazon Cloud. We bring it into the Amazon Cloud. We fire up dozens and dozens of computers to process it. Um, but it's something that compared to what we do here in Silicon Valley for YouTube or Google Books or some of these other, you know, Facebook, some of it, compared to the, the data volume that a lot of these other Silicon Valley companies work with, the data volume for the U.S. Corn Belt is is manageable, um, and we'll go and hire people. The guy that runs our DevOps used to do um, movies for used to distribute movies for Netflix. So we've got guys that are used to dealing with you know very large data pipelines, very large volumes of data. So so the data that's the data volume problem. Then there's of course the problem: of what do you do with the data? Uh, and it turns out there are some there's some nice um, properties of a little bit technical. The nice properties of chlorophyll. Um, chlorophyll, its job is to absorb sunlight and turn it into energy, and it does a really good job of it. But then when you get to the infrared, the part of the spectrum that's just past the red, chlorophyll reflects all the infrared. So we look at the ratio, we look at the light coming back to the satellite when the sun hits the plant and comes back up, and we look at the ratio of the red to the infrared. And if that ratio is skewed heavily to the infrared, it means there's a lot of chlorophyll activity because the chlorophyll is sucking up all the red and, and reflecting back the infrared. So by looking at that ratio, we get a very sensitive count of chlorophyll molecules. So I sometimes joke that to predict Walmart sales, we count cars. To predict corneal, we count chlorophyll atoms. But it's really just all the same thing as far as the computer is concerned. I'll get my coat. <laughs> I'm just blown away yet again. I must have watched this interview 10 times. Yeah. And every time I think, so here's a guy who's come out of Google Books and NASA and everything else. Next minute, he knows the reflective properties of chlorophyll within plants, can spot it knows exactly what size pixel he needs to analyse that database to understand how the corn crop is going. It's just, it's beyond my comprehension. But it's just, you know, when I, I remember watching this interview and, and as we said earlier, you know, I remember you calling me and saying, you know, I just had my mind blown by this guy. So as soon as we got the footage, I sat down and watched it. And, and likewise, I'm sitting there going, this is just crazy stuff. This is, this is thinking on a level that not many people get a chance to listen in on. And, and it was fascinating to hear the kind of things going on. You know, I was, I was intrigued by just how much data is being crunched everywhere in the world now this you know this business of data and even though it's becoming a commodity there is just so much need for data storage and that was one of my takeaways from this well for me i've been writing smart schools in the past about data is the new oil yeah and very few firms own all the data i mean whether it's facebook whether it's google whether it's amazon um whether it's Twitter, and you know, there's about 10 firms in the world and all pretty much all the data yeah. that there is in the kind of commercial enterprise. And this guy has tapped into satellite imagery, which is interesting, but also slightly terrifying to me. Yeah. The amount of information that somebody can know about you or the economic or social environment that you live in now with satellite imagery, with Facebook, with Google, and all the things they know, I mean, y- you have no privacy in this world. No, and no. under no illusion. I mean, even with me. In Little Cayman, I can see my house in perfect um, picture form on on Google Earth. Yeah, there is no privacy. Well, you look at the, you know, just a story in the in the press uh, the other day, and 
There was a guy in New York City who walked past a, a bucket that had a bunch of gold coins in it, just picked it up and walked off. Just some random guy in the street, they found him. A few weeks later, they found some random guy through CCTV footage, tracking his movements. I mean, you know, if, if you're a criminal listening to this, you, know, you need to get smarter because there's uh... But why was the bucket of gold coins in the street? They didn't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> Let's listen to the next clip. Um, the other one that I think is really interesting and very topical right now is, is crude oil supply. Um, because obviously the price of gas in the U.S. has gone very low. Um, and there are two big unknowns that drive that. Um, one is there's not precise data on the rate of fracking and the rate of growth in fracking. There's not well, three things. There's not precise data on the rate at which Iran is starting to produce again. And there's not precise data on China's consumption as the economy slows down, as we were talking about before. And one way to get at that is to look at what it all nets out to, because the net between supply and consumption is crude oil inventory. So whenever supply goes up or demand goes down, more crude oil builds up. And it's stored in tanks with floating lids. Um, and the reason they do that is crude oil is volatile. It has everything in it from tar to propane. You don't want the volatile compounds to escape. So you sit the lid right on the oil. And when the tank fills up, the lid goes up, the tank empties, the lid goes down. And we can see that from space because these tanks are huge. I mean, like two or three of these tanks is the equivalent of a super tanker. Um, and we've identified 17,000 tanks around the world. And we're just ramping up a project. And this was in our top five, ramping up a project to actually track. Um, and every day, all the imagery we can get from all our providers that includes an oil tank We'll process that imagery and update our estimate for that oil tank. And this gives us a, a daily updated ongoing estimate of the amount of crude oil in the world. Um, so that's that product is one we're going to have out later this year that I'm actually really excited about. And how does it differ from the official data? We get two or three sources of inventory data. Does it differ significantly from that or does it give you a more real time? It's more real time for sure. So, so the IEA data, um, which covers a big chunk of the world, like two-thirds of the world, their first report is six weeks old by the time it comes out. Because again, it's all survey-based. We were talking about how we often replace surveys. This is another survey. All the guys that own tank farms, they get a survey, they fill it out, say, I think I have about this much oil, and they send it back. IEA collates it. Six weeks later, they send you a report. And then they revise it for the next six months. Um, and there's also Jody, which covers more of the world, but is considered less accurate. So there's a bunch of countries that IEA doesn't cover at all. And then, of course, there's the fact that we're bringing it much more real-time. Because I think there's a real value in the disintermediation of data source, because so much has come from government organizations. Right, right. There is an inherent mistrust, I guess, of information, whether it's even from the Department of Agriculture through to whole different areas, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in China, yeah. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I guess to have independent data sources of this really in a yeah. provable way, not just mm-hmm. a survey, mm-hmm. something... I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. I think it's really it's really valuable because it is objective, and and even if the government are trying to do their best job, they're still subject to survey biases and all kinds of other issues. And and just the timeliness is not. When you think of the timeliness, your immediate thought on timeliness is well, okay, somebody can make some money because they can trade in advance of the government signal. But but the other thing is it really can help address price swings because when you're driving looking in your rearview mirror, you inevitably overcorrect. So you don't realize that there's too much crude oil in the world until there's way too much. And then the price of oil swings way down or way up. So actually, I hope that this kind of more timely knowledge of trends like this can actually help ultimately help stabilize some of the commodity pricing. What was interesting there, he was talking about crude oil. And recently he's come out and he's been quite public with showing that the amount of crude oil in storage in China is much more than people expect. So the world supply and demand numbers are slightly screwed. Basically, there's more oil around than they think. And right now we've got the position where this is where you can use information like this. You've got the biggest ever speculative long position in the history of crude oil markets. And I've spoken to some of the oil producers in Houston, and they're all record short oil because they think the the market is massively oversupplied, but the speculators have kept it high. And the crude oil price has been kind of floating around this $50, $55 barrel level. And then he comes out and says, listen, guys, there is much more crude oil than people think there is. China's awash with the stuff right now. So therefore, demand shouldn't be so strong going forwards. I think that's the real value to these things. And as he rightly pointed out, as we discussed earlier, Grant, is, is the government data 
everyone lies about crude oil. You know, yeah. OPEC lies. Everybody lies. Of course. So you need somebody who's independent in this to say, okay, this is what it looks like the most likely outcome is. Well, I remember, yeah, I remember listening to this and thinking at the time, A, how extraordinary it is the amount uh, of focus that the market puts into data that's at best six weeks old and, and reacts to it three seconds. As soon as it comes out, we have to do something on this six-week-old data. <laughs> yeah. And then you think about the information arbitrage here. You, know, you have something like this that comes into a marketplace, the ability to measure that and get a signal six weeks before the rest of the market gets it. And we know that those anomalies get arbitraged out in a hurry. You know, this, this information becomes incredibly important for everybody to have. You know, if, you can, if you can devise something like this and bring something like this to the marketplace, the first day you bring it in, everybody needs it. I mean, it's a great way to build a business. But then, as you know, somebody will arbitrage that latency as right. well by looking at a way of getting that information even faster or finding a faster satellite link or yeah. a faster processing of that data yeah. because then you get an edge. If this becomes the edge... Then everyone find another edge for that. It's that kind of data overload that goes on, and it's the kind of deflationary forces of this kind of stuff. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the next clip. Whenever the weather is bad in the Northeast, people always get you know pundits always get on CNBC and say, "Oh, retail sales are down in the Northeast, but that's okay. It's just because there's a really bad winter." And other people say, "Oh, come on, you're just making excuses, right?" But we've actually now have the data since we, we have, um, we're tracking 50 retailers, 50,000 U.S. retail stores. We can break it out and break out the Northeast versus the rest of the country. And we've actually seen that, sure enough, it's actually true. When there's really bad weather in the Northeast, like last winter, February and March, we're, we're just horrible in the Northeast. And, and when that happens, you see a big difference. The, the North, retail sales in the Northeast will drop way below the rest of the country. And then the spring comes. And you get into April, March, late March or April, May, and the Northeast suddenly kicks way above the rest of the country. And then, and then on mild weather, mild winter years, they'll stay the same. They'll both fall the same amount and it won't be the spring uptick. So we really can see that behavior in the, in the car counts that, that people don't shop um, in, the, in the cold winters. And when spring comes, they actually make up for it. So the guys are right when they say don't worry so much about spending in the Northeast in a bad winter. We can also see some interesting things um, with respect to some of the pairs of stores, um, sort of more on a, on a, on a microeconomic sense. So, so there's been some belief in the press, for instance, that Home Depot is starting to beat Lowe's. Um, and we actually can track it now for six years. And we can see the trend start in the spring, which is interesting because um, home improvement is, is very much a springtime activity. Um, that's another thing we do see is that, is that so many stores, they, have, they say that Christmas is their season. Christmas really is their season. I mean, you'll see a huge increase for all the department stores and, and starting a little before Thanksgiving. And then, and then a, just a crater in January. If you want to find an empty department store, just go in January. They're all there. As far as we can tell, they're all empty. Um, but but um, home improvement, it's all about spring. So there's a huge increase in the spring when everybody wants to, I don't know, plant bulbs or redo their garden or add an addition or something. Um, and that is where we first saw Home Depot starting to get ahead of Lowe's. Um, so in the early years, they'll be neck and neck, and then they'll be neck and neck all year except for in the spring. And then gradually that lead in the spring spread to the rest of the year. So as people started to try it out in the spring and liked it better, I guess, they started to go there more and more in the rest of the year. And now we'll see Home Depot ahead of Lowe's. And this is, and when I say ahead, I mean cars per store. So this is not about building more stores. This is about the, the profitability and success of individual stores. For me, this whole interview with James is really about the future of finance. And the future of finance, whether we like it or not, is the future of artificial intelligence. We've seen it with people like Renaissance Technologies. We've seen the growth of the high-frequency traders. And we've seen the growth of robo-advisors. And the speed at which the West Coast is developing technology to understand pattern recognition, behavioral, you know, behavioral pattern recognition, all of this stuff, it renders all models useless. I mean, there is no reason now for governments to have, or central banks have economic modelling, for example. You might as well do big data analytics and actually know what's going on and, and what drives behaviour. You know, what incentives will get millennials to buy houses? You can actually kind of split test that by doing stuff yeah. nowadays. You don't need to model this kind of stuff. You can actually test it. But I just think the whole thing about artificial intelligence and finance is, whether we like it or not, as I say, because we've been around, this is our future, it's what paid our bills, and a lot of what we do disappears. It does, but it's, it's, it's tremendously um, 
it's a great equalizing force when everyone has the same data. I'm, I'm fascinated to watch as we watch markets levitate and we watch the the percentage of that trading that's that's computer driven. You get this this point where all the computers are doing the same thing because the artificial intelligence is generally very very similar in how it's constructed, and so you know you you very quickly get around the other side of the circle where people at the right turning points can try and front run the computers and try and get ahead of when those trends change. And I, you know, I get the feeling that we're nearing one of those points as you watch the S&P and you watch the Dow creep to new all-time highs, you can feel the exhaustion there. And it feels like it might be the human So why can't you model that? Uh, it's a great, no, it's a great question. It, it's, I mean, it's AI absolutely right. would also notice the tendency for other AI to... I don't know where this leads to, exactly. right? It's exactly. It's going around my head now, and I'm thinking, I have no idea where this leads to. It's, it's a bit the, of a rabbit it's hole. It's the snake eating its tail, I mean, but that's where we are. <laughs> but, exactly. you know, but going back to the, 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 the retail thing, which is something I've been spending a lot of time looking at, and, I, and I'm fascinated by this, because as, as the retail, as the malls empty out, and you know, there was an article in Bloomberg this week about a, a billion feet of retail space may need to close uh, in the coming couple of years, um, because everything's moving online. Now, that's another thing you can track. Arguably, you can track that more accurately than taking a satellite picture of cars because you can see how many people in the mall. You don't know what they're spending. You don't know what's happening. The data, as it moves out of the bricks and mortar stores and online, is only going to get more accurate. And that doesn't necessarily help CEOs of companies that are struggling. It doesn't give them any leeway to try and goose the numbers and try and you know put a rosy spin on the numbers of the numbers, and the data is going to be the data. And that seems to be the way we're going to move forward. Yeah, I mean, Google will know... You know, the power of Google Analytics, they'll know how many visitors Amazon's getting to their site. Yeah. I mean, if Google actually sold its data, which I think in one day, one way it will do when data becomes oil and they own it. Well, WikiLeaks get it. Yeah, but the fact is, is, is that data is so powerful that they own, they've barely monetized it. Right now, they're an advertising business. Yeah. But really, once they start selling data, they want to go to a hedge fund and go, we can tell you in ultra speed exactly what's happening on Amazon at any one time, people just will hand them millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, we get back to the other point. You can't, if they do that, you can't not have that data, right? If, if everyone else has got their data and you haven't, you're lost. Yeah. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an exciting world, but a depressing world as well. <laughs> <laughs> For old guys like us, exactly right. Wow, Grant, I, you know, just like Raul and, and yourself, I was, I kind of had my mind blown. This guy is just rattling off his achievement after achievement, Google, NASA, just yes, incredibly smart. Um, but there are some follow-up questions I wish I could have asked if I was, you know, if we could have another session with James, you know, one being, you know, what is the interplay between government entities and the private space industry and what that means for the future of data collection? Because I was reading about uh, the growing amount of low earth orbit space debris and how that, that's actually becoming an impediment for uh, commercial interests in space. So I, I think that would just be really un- interesting to understand from his perspective where he is using the data, but also how that data is collected. So hang on, let me just get this right. You were reading about how much low Earth orbit space debris there is. You yeah, are just such a nerd, Aaron. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> just you're can- supposed to, when you take a little time off, you know, read read some read some poetry, read some Shakespeare. Wait, low uh, low Earth orbit space debris. Grant, I, I know you think it's nerdy, but it's actually a big deal. You know, in 2007, China destroyed a weather satellite in a missile test, essentially creating two two and a half thousand pieces of new debris in space. In 2009, a 1,900 pound Russian satellite collided with an Iridium communication satellite, creating more orbital debris. So I know this is a serious, serious issue and could mean, I don't know, investing opportunities in the future if there are people who need to clean up this debris? Well, look, I guess. I mean, you know, I'll be honest with you. I haven't done a lot of thinking about this, uh, but I mean, I'm, I'm guessing an investment in a hard hat company wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe I'll send you a couple of charts and change your mind. All right. Well, listen, hey, whatever floats your boat. I mean, look, it's it's fascinating stuff. I mean, listening to James, you realize that there's um, there's a world out there that uh, that mere mortals like you, me, and Raoul just don't have any place in. I mean, it is extraordinary what these guys are doing. Uh, and for me, you know, the, the impressive thing is just the imagination that it takes to actually dream up the stuff they're doing, let alone going to do it. You know, these guys are coming up um, with solutions to problems we don't even know we have yet. Uh, it's it's just extraordinary technology, and, and the pace at which it's moving just astounds me. It really is. And even the tools that they're using too, right? I mean, we know about... Amazon Web Services and how you're able to do 
parallel computing and, and, and which has enabled uh, companies like Orbital to do what they're doing with satellite imagery data. So it's, yeah, yeah, you're completely right. It's incredible. And I'm looking forward to see how this changes finance in the future. All right. Well, let's leave space debris for now. Let's uh, park that somewhere up in space, preferably, and get on to our last segment, uh, Things I Got Wrong. I, and I love this segment. You know, Each week we feature a leading market expert sharing a story of a time they got something wrong, which is, which is not what you usually get people talking about. And particularly, we're trying to get to the lesson that they learned uh, from that experience. And this week, I'm delighted to say we have a, a really good friend of mine, Javed Mian, who, who's, a, who's a super nice guy and, and a brilliant thinker. He's the founder and managing editor of Stray Reflections. And uh, Real Vision subscribers will recognize Javed from his ongoing travel series when he, when he travels around the world looking at investment opportunities in all kinds of places. So let's hand it over to Javed. Joining us this week is Jawad Mian. Jawad, thanks for taking the time. And before we start, can you give us a rundown of who you are and what you do? Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So I founded Stray Reflections about four years ago, and Stray Reflections is basically a global macro research and trading advisory. So we spend our time thinking about important macro, theme, macro themes and then coming up with actionable trade ideas um, for investors. And our clients range from individual readers to some of the world's largest hedge funds, family offices, and institutional investors. So we've got a pretty diverse following. Sticking with the segment's theme, throughout your career as an analyst and as an investor, can you describe a time you faced a significant investing challenge or made a mistake? Sure. Um, I think the most interesting for your listeners would be something from uh, a few years ago. So when I basically resigned from my last uh, job where I was a prop trader um, back in 2012, it was basically because I wanted to be my own, be my own uh, businessman and found Stray Reflections. And I decided early on um, that I will do so. I will resign and begin my own company when I have at least enough savings for three years. So this is back in 2012, and I was 28 at that time. So I was like, you know what? Uh, Stan Druckenmiller, reading from Market Wizards, talked about uh, taking him three years to make more money than a secretary. So I figured I should leave myself a three-year cushion to uh, launch a new business. So I did that. I had enough cash savings for three years. And at that time, silver was around 35, 40 bucks. And I figured for year three, so I keep two years of savings in cash. And for year three, I'll pile that into physical silver. And by the time 2015 uh, rolled in, I, or 2016 rolls in, you know, silver will be at 100 bucks, and I will be selling off my position and have that as my income or my salary to last me another couple of years based on how business um, evolves around that time. So as you know, I'm sure, <laughs> based on where silver, silver prices are, things don't always work out as planned. And I, instead of selling silver at 100 in 2015 or 2016, I actually liquidated some positions at 17 and 18 um, to fund some business needs for a short period of time. So that would probably be the most memorable and interesting investing mistake I've made over my career. You know, it's it's fascinating to hear about your experience with silver because <laughs> it hits home for me as a fellow silver investor, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners as well. But can you talk a little bit more about what it was like on the way down from $48 to $17? So it was naturally painful because uh, on one side, you're just launching a new business um, and you naturally want to uh, have decent cash flow expectations because uh, initially when I started Share Reflections, we were just publishing for free. And then gradually, as we got more institutional interest and wider readership, um, we then turned into a subscription-based model. So, uh, I mean, just like every position that goes against you, it affects your gut, it affects your psychology, and um, you try to reevaluate why things are going um, in a certain direction. And I think, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it was a very uncomfortable experience, but, you know, I think I've learned a lot from that experience, and it's certainly a very core element of uh, what I do now with Stray Reflections. Well, it's interesting to hear about how the investing experience is woven into the experience of starting a business. So what was the main lesson you drew from this? So you're constantly evaluating the fundamentals, right? So th that is something uh, that you don't stop doing. 
But I think what's more important is, frankly, understanding yourself. Because I, I frequently tell um, clients as well as people that generally want advice that the biggest risk in this business that you need to manage is yourself. It's not some position. It's actually yourself. And it's your biases that keep you from buying or selling a particular uh, investment. And in that situation, I think the biggest lesson that I learned was if you, if you know, you know, you, the, the gold bug community is pretty ideological, uh, you know, very one-sided in terms of their outlook about what's happening in the world and where things are going to end up. And I think uh, at that time, you know, 2011, 2012, um, I probably got swept away in that psychology to, to, a, to a certain extent. Um, and the lesson I learned was that uh, no matter what happens, what's important is that we are agnostic in our analysis rather than ideological and empirical rather than then. <clears throat> Excuse me. And empirical rather than dogmatic. And I think a lot of people within the gold community are extremely ideological and extremely dogmatic uh, about their views um, that remain unchanged despite changing fundamentals. And I think that's something that I learned. And I've spent more and more of my time trying to unlearn uh, any habits, any um, activities, any sort of biases that would put me in an ideological or a, dog, or a dogmatic camp. So I think fundamental to what we do now as an investment process is to remain independent. I don't care to be consensus or contrarian. I'd rather be independent. And that's a core strength and um, as agnostic as possible and not ideological. So I think that's the, learn. that's the lesson learned. Well, following up on that, Jawad, I want to press you a little bit more on how you think about managing oneself, as you say. You... I don't think you can do this without strong elements of self-reflection and honesty. So on one hand, when you consider things like fundamentals and technicals, I mean, that's all over the internet and there's a host of, there are a host of books you can read. But where was your starting point for asking the right questions about yourself? So I think it comes down to your motivations for doing anything. And I think what, I lo- what gets me into markets is actually, I think that it intersects life uh, as well. And I think the biggest uh, risk or the biggest enemy in life that we have is our ego. And I think the same applies to markets. So a lot of times you're just fighting with the market because you think you're right. Um, and it's actually the ego that is uh, playing that game as opposed to solid understanding of fundamentals. So I think the more uh, I reflected on the ego at a personal level and I understood its influence at the professional level, the more you realize and have this self-conversation with yourself, right? So you understand, you can basically step outside yourself, as I read in, as I read in some book, and evaluate yourself, you know? So you look at yourself as an independent entity uh, away from your biases and really, really try to uh, isolate those negative behavioral patterns that may be sabotaging your performance. And it's only uh, possible to do so when you sort of um, switch off from your day-to-day routine and actually reflect deeper into some of your motivations and reasons for uh, doing things. Great. Thanks so much for the insight, Jawad. Before we sign off, can you tell our listeners where they can find your work or follow you on Twitter? So um, I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter and my handle is at J-S-M-I-A-N. And they can also reach us on our website, which is www.stray-reflections.com. If they shoot us an email, we can send them a sample of our work. Perfect. Thanks again for your time. Absolute pleasure, Aaron. All the best. Well, Grant, there's so much to take out of what Jawad is saying. You know, the biggest risk being managing yourself, staying agnostic in your analysis, and and really the biggest enemy in life being your ego. There's no, as far as I know, there's no head and shoulders or charting patterns to chart your ego. So, and all that requires just honest reflection. So it's just, you know, a lot of things that require deep reflection and probably easier said than done. Yeah, Javad's absolutely right. You know, it's funny that this, the idea of trying to stay out of your own way is, is so important when you're investing. And, and this whole idea of ego, uh, as part of this series about things you got wrong, uh, having, the, having the ability to admit to yourself that you're wrong, it's a tough thing for us to do. You know, we, we don't like to admit we're wrong uh, at the best of times. And when there's money on the line, 
admitting you're wrong when you're losing money is an even harder thing to do. So I, I think it's great advice from Javed that that learning to be honest with yourself, look in the mirror, and, and, and be and be cold, hard, and calculating about what you have to do rather than what you feel you want to do is a crucial skill to learn when you're investing. And we should probably let our listeners know that anything you've heard in this episode should not be considered or construed as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, set your stop losses, and trade responsibly. Well, James is looking at me signaling that we are out of time. Well, this is the end of this episode. Next week, we are back with our long, short, and things I got wrong segments. Our main feature is going to bring you up to speed on what's happened since last June's Brexit referendum. Uh, And we're going to take a look ahead as we approach the triggering of Article 50 by uh, the end of this month. And if you look at web search interests, especially for Brexit, it's plummeted across the world. And But the consequences of triggering a divorce between the UK and the EU are real and fast approaching. So to help shed some light on the past, present, and future of Brexit, we'll speak with leading analysts in the UK, including Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Marcus Ashworth. And we'll also hear from Steve Keen, the renegade economist and the professor of economics at Kingston University. Now, as always, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, please, we'd love to hear it. Uh, Just send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Yeah, please remember to leave those reviews. And to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And we'll also be hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just, uh, again, search there for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Macrodidact. And I just want to give a shout out to Kevin McLeod for the arrangement of Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra, which was made famous by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. We will see you next week. Hold on a sec, Grant. We've got a special treat for the listeners today. Guys, you might think that this podcast just comes together seamlessly and without a hitch, but it takes a lot of work and we stumble from time to time, which can be kind of hilarious. So we're going to cap things off with some bloopers from today's episode. Enjoy. All right, so then we segue into the next segment, right? We have the... Yeah, we've done that, right? We've done yeah, we've done that, yeah. Yep. Dude, we are getting pretty f-ing slick at this, boys. Well, I'm going to put you guys to the test right now, actually. Um, so if you go right to the top of... No! Oh, fuck! My thing wasn't recording. No, I did push record, but it wasn't recording. Oh, no. So, oh, right, uh, right. Edit out that bit about us being really slick. <laughs> I've got it on tape. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to pull a David Bowie and be Rocket Man for a day. <laughs> you you numbed it. That's Elton John. Oh, sh- <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs>